Stephen Jay Gold was the eminent Harvard paleontologist, professor of geology, the ardent evolutionist and defender of the theory of evolution. On the 100th anniversary of Charles Darwin's death, Gould wrote in Discover Magazine in 1982, or 18, yeah, 1982, he wrote, Charles Darwin died in April 1882. He wished to be buried in his beloved village, but the sentiment of educated men demanded a place in Westminster Abbey beside Isaac Newton. As his coffin entered the vast building, the choir sang an anthem composed for the occasion. It's a text from the book of Proverbs, and it may stand as the most fitting testimony of Darwin's greatness. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and getteth understanding. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things that thou canst desire are not to be compared to her. Unquote. Now, Darwin was not buried in Westminster Abbey in a church because he was a staunch defender of the faith. Uh, he, he was not a friend of the church in any, any means, but he wasn't an atheist really either. And Gould continues, he probably retained a belief in some kind of personal God, but he did not grant his deity a directly and continuously intervening role in the evolutionary process, unquote. Now, Darwin was buried at Westminster Abbey because of the profound contribution he made to science, of all things. Now, this is not to name Darwin as the lone culprit responsible for the crisis of faith that's precipitated by evolutionary theory. It's merely an illustration to show some great ironies and one grand truth. The first irony is this. It's ironic that Darwin's final tribute was a scriptural anthem. The truth Darwin and other evolutionists do not believe. Likewise, it's ironic that his final wishes were not honored and he was buried within the church. And even the choice of scripture and the anthem is ironic. Proverbs, the pursuit of, of wisdom. Now, the grand truth is, however, that scripture and God always have the last word. Darwin's burial inadvertently acknowledges that truth and faith have the last say over men and their ideas. This is perhaps the central truth of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Let God be found true. Let God be proven true. Let God have the last word. God gets the last word always. Yet the world is full of critics, critics of the faith and critics of the Bible. It's full of those who vocally raise their objections to what the Bible teaches and what it means to be a person of faith. As Christians, we encounter a number of common objections, and we've talked about some of these in the book of Romans already. But why does a good and loving God allow so much suffering in the world? If you watch Facebook, social media, since the shooting in Las Vegas, the hurricanes, that's all over social media. Why, why does God allow such a thing? Or, or why is Jesus the only way to God? Now, will God send good, sincere people from other religions to hell? What about the people who have lived and died without ever hearing about Jesus? Will they be punished eternally in hell even though they never had the opportunity to believe? Is this fair? What about the errors and contradictions in the Bible? Have you heard that one? What about the contradictions between science and the Bible? I know you've all heard those. In the first part of Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is responding to these kinds of objections. It's a tough passage to understand. 
In rapid succession, Paul raises and answers a series of questions that the Jewish critics would have thrown at him. So if you find it difficult to track the argument of Paul this morning in these verses, you're in good company. Many commentators admit that these are the most difficult verses to interpret in the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that many say that these are the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. John Piper devoted an entire sermon on these verses to answer the question, why God inspired hard text. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, composed a little ditty, and it's in Old English, so I'll see if I can get through this one this morning. <laughs> he said, hard text are nuts. I would not call them cheaters whose shells do oft times keep them from the eaters. And so to get to the meat of this nut, we have to work very hard to crack the shell this morning. So I want to say three things that will help us crack the shell of this nut. The first thing is to remember that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, and it was a letter delivered by Phoebe, the deaconess of the church, and she or one of the elders of the church would have stood before the congregation and read this text out loud. Most of the congregation were illiterate. Most were uneducated. More than half would have been slaves. There would have been many children in the congregation. No one had a copy of God's word to place in their lap like we do. And no, no one was able to follow along visually with the text. And yet Paul thought this so important that he approaches it brazenly, unashamedly without without uh, apology. But this is something the entire congregation needed to hear. This is not something that we skim over because it's, it's difficult. Now, the second thing I want to say is that it's helpful to see that Paul is using a rhetorical device called a diatribe. Uh, we had some of Elizabeth's friends in our home yesterday to have chili, and one of them said she's a rhetoric major, and I wanted to ask her all these questions about diatribes and, <laughs> you know, what is a rhetorical question, those kind of things, but <laughs> I didn't do that. Paul here is confronting the vigorous objections coming from those to whom he would have preached the gospel. These objections would have resulted from Paul arguing in the synagogues. Remember, whenever Paul went to a new place, on the Sabbath morning, he went to the synagogue because that's where he knew that the Jews were gathered and he proclaimed the gospel. He taught the gospel. And then someone would stand up and vocally and vigorously and angrily confront Paul. We'd call him a heckler today. Not a heckler today where somebody repeats the same phrase over and over just to be a distraction, like shame, shame, shame. We hear that in Congress. But uh, this is the kind of heckler who expresses a pointed argument, a heated argument, where people in the congregation start going, hey, well, what about that? I, I was wondering about that too. Paul, you're a liar. You make God a liar. You know, these kind of antagonist Hecklers, you know, they're really good at asking gotcha questions. You know, there's no right answer. Are Christians naive or are they stupid? Okay. <laughs> how, how would you answer that kind of question? Paul knows what he has been saying in Romans chapter 2 and 3 is going to offend a lot of people and these kinds of objections are going to be raised. He knew that the religious Jews would challenge his statements that being a Jew, a true Jew, and being truly circumcised were not external matters of all, but they were of the heart. 
His aim is to show that even the most religious of Jews, like the Gentiles, are all under sin, and thus they need the gospel. And then we must not forget the main thing. In, in our Hebrew study in, in Sunday school, we've been talking about the main thing is in, or in Hebrews chapter eight, verse one, the writer says the main thing of all of this, the main point of all of this is this. So we must not forget the main thing thing here in Romans chapter three. As we come to this difficult text, the main thing is let God be proven true. Let God have the last word. God gets the last word always. And that's why we need to understand this, because it's about the faithfulness of God who gets the last word. Let God be found true. And every one of these objections that we're going to look at questions the character of God. It questions his word. It questions his faithfulness. It questions his righteousness. And it questions his truth. And so the first objections in Romans chapter three, verse one, the third chapter of Romans, the first verse Paul has written in chapter two that a true Jew is one who is one inwardly. It's of the heart. It's not of the outward rituals such as circumcision. It's by the spirit of God, not by the letter. And Paul here completely redefined what it meant to be a Jew. And so verse one of chapter three, this is the first objection. And if you want to picture somebody standing up in a synagogue and angrily saying these things, asking these questions to Paul. It's a good way to see it. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? And so to paraphrase, based on what Paul wrote in chapter two, Paul's Jewish readers would have objected. Paul, if being a physical descendant of Abraham and receiving the sign of circumcision are of no value, as you say they are, then you're throwing out the entire Old Testament. What good are God's promises to Abraham, the father of faith? Your view, Paul, takes away all the advantages that the Old Testament promised to the Jews. It wipes out the promises of the Old Testament, the promises of God. In effect, Paul, you just wiped out the entire Old Testament. Now, as a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ, how would you answer those objections? The old covenant is null and void. There's a new covenant in Jesus Christ. Then what advantage has the Jew or was the benefit of circumcision. Now, you'd expect Paul to answer, you're right. Being a Jew or being circumcised doesn't get you anywhere with God under the new covenant, because that's the point that he made in chapter two. But instead, Paul surprises us by saying, great in every respect. What is the advantage of being a Jew? Verse two of Romans three, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says, first of all, but he doesn't give us a second or a third. To, to get the second and third and so on, we have to go over to Romans chapter 9, if you want to turn there for just a minute. Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, because we get the first of all in Romans chapter 3, and we don't get any of the rest of them, but he lists some of the advantages over in, in chapter 9, verse 4, where he says, Jews who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons. That's pretty good advantage, isn't it? And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Christ comes from the Jews, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. 
But in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, first of all, and then he only gives one great advantage of being a Jew. And this is the great advantage. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. This refers to the Old Testament as a whole. With special reference to God's promises of salvation. God had not revealed himself in this specific way to any other people, to any other nation on earth. No other nation received, no other people received the oracles of God. God promised through the Jewish prophets as recorded in the Old Testament to send the Savior of the world through them. Jesus said salvation is from the Jews. Also through the symbolic significance of the temple and its ceremonies, the law, the sacrifices, the Jews uniquely had God's revelation about the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. All the other nations were left in darkness, spiritual darkness, yet God entrusted the Jews with his very word. That was a great privilege, but it's also a great responsibility to have the light of God's word and then to reject it means that you are more accountable to God than the person who had no light except the revelation of creation. During 2,000 years of human history, from Abraham to Christ, the pagan nations worshipped their false god. They offered sacrifices to appease the anger of their false gods. They lived in fear. They lived in confusion with no hope of salvation. But the Jews knew how to approach the living and true God, maker of heaven and earth. They had his promises to send the Savior In Luke chapter 2, as we're anticipating the Christmas story, as we might call it, the godly in Israel were looking for the fulfillment of the promises. That was the unspeakable privilege and a great advantage which all the nations of the earth, of of all the nations of the earth, was given only to the Jews. But the fact that many in Israel did not believe in God's promises of salvation, it leads to a second objection. We see it in verse 3 of Romans chapter 3. You can almost hear again the indignation of the critic when he stands up and objects to Paul. Verse 3, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? This is one of those where the answer is much easier to understand than the question. I'm glad God does that for us. It presumes on the idea that even if we are unfaithful, God will keep his promises and God keeps his promises no matter what. Or if some don't believe, that doesn't nullify God's promises, does it? Now, the problem is this. God is or Paul has already shown that the Old Testament law, the old covenant is null and void. As we've seen in the adult Sunday school class in Hebrews again, we saw the same thing. Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 7, verse 18 says, the old covenant was set aside because of its weakness, because of its uselessness. The old covenant could not save. The law could not prevent somebody from what? Sinning. It only brought knowledge of sin. Then they say, what does that say about God's faithfulness? It does not... Does unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? In verse 4 of Romans chapter 3, Paul responds in very powerful terms. Verse 4, he says, may it never be. In the Greek, it's megenita. No, not ever, no way. It's the most powerful, strongest way you could say it's never going to happen. 
And he says, rather, let God be found true. Though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are are judged. Even if every person in the world, every person in the world were unfaithful and accused God of being unfaithful to his promises, God's faithfulness to his word, it would only mean that everybody else is a liar. Everybody's a liar and God is still true. God's faithfulness to his word is a necessary attribute of his being. If he were not faithful, he would not be God, but he would be a liar. But it is given that God cannot lie. You know, if there seems to be a discrepancy between the promises of God and what we perceive as truth, you know, we can't rectify what God says and and what he's going to do. And we got another idea that we might we just can't understand God. Guess what? The fault always lies with us. Not with God. In any contention, God is right, even if the whole world lines up against him. And God or Paul backs up this assertion by quoting Psalm 51, verse four in the fourth verse of Romans three that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are our judge. Remember Psalm 51? What is Psalm, What is the first 51st Psalm? Anybody remember? Psalm 51 is David's confession and plea for mercy after his sin with Bathsheba. David agrees that God is justified in every word, that the prophet Nathan spoke to God about the consequences of his sin. God, David sees that he has no excuses, He has no grounds to complain. He deserved death, but God mercifully spared his life. But God also pronounced a series of judgments against David. The baby would die. The sword would not depart from his own household. Evil would be raised up against him from within his household. Yet David is saying, God, you're completely right in your judgments. And I am completely wrong and guilty before you. And Paul uses this quote to show that God is just as faithful when he judges his people for his sins as he is when he saves them according to his promise. God is just as faithful when he judges us for our sins as when he saves us according to his promises. If sinners repent, God mercifully forgives the guilt. But he never treats them unjustly, even if he judges them. We have all sinned many times. We all deserve his judgments. If he judges the guilty, he does not cease to be faithful to his promises to save those who repent and trust in him. Now, while the second objection was difficult to understand when it questioned God's faithfulness, the third objection moves into the realm of ridiculousness. They are showing what William Barclay calls their amazing ingenuity in justifying their sin. But Paul had no doubt heard this objection when he preached in the synagogues, beginning at verse 5 of Romans chapter 3. But if our unrighteous demonstrates the righteousness of God, 
You know, in other words, when we're unrighteous and God is righteous, when he judges us, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms, says Paul. May Ganeta, may it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? To paraphrase, Paul, if you're saying that God's righteousness shines through when he judges us, it's a display of his righteousness, then he would be wrong to judge us because we'd actually be instruments of his glory. He judges us, it displays his glory. How can God judge us for something when he turns it to his own advantage? It's an outrageous argument, but when people start to rationalize their own sin, reason goes out the window, replaced by amazing ingenuity. You know, it's the same thinking in Romans chapter 5, where Paul says that where sin increases, grace abounds more. So Paul says to the ingenious thinker trying to rationalize his sin, then to get more grace, all I got to do is sin more. There's actually people who believe that. If you want to look over at chapter 6, verse 1 for a minute, how does Paul respond? To get more grace, all I have to do is sin more. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Meganita. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's yet another outrageous argument that when people start to rationalize their sin, Reason goes out the window. So far out the window that they think they're really raising legitimate questions uh, about it. The Jews wanted God to judge the Gentiles for their many gross sins, but they thought as Jews they'd get a free pass. But Paul is saying that their line of reasoning would prohibit God's judgment on anyone. If he doesn't judge the Jews, then he can't judge and he won't judge the, the Gentiles. So if you think you're exempt, the Gentiles have to be exempt as well. Well, the, the critics are not satisfied with Paul's answer to their ridiculous objection. And this is where they become hecklers, antagonists in the true sense of the word. They start to harass Paul at this point. So in verse 7 of Romans chapter 3, they rephrase the same objection. Their thinking is, you don't like the answer? Just rephrase it until you get an answer that, that works for you. That's what antagonists do. They ask questions and they're gotcha questions. You know, as soon as you answer anyway, what? They think, oh, I've got him. And so they just rephrase it. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 3. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, that's what Paul's saying, why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is, is just. If, says the antagonist, my rejection of the truth serves to make the truthfulness of God more apparent and thus increase his glory, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? In fact, should we not say, let us do evil that good may result? Now, Paul's answer to this outlandish argument is, people who say this, their condemnation is just. He doesn't even try to argue against it. He just says, in other words, those who claim this thing, they have just hung themselves. They've just signed their own death warrant. Those who spread such pernicious misrepresentations of the truth of God deserve the condemnation that would come to them. And all those Paul's argument is not easy to follow and these verses are difficult. The bottom line is clear. The bottom line is clear. Their condemnation is just. 
If you contend with God, he will win and you'll be condemned. Paul's bottom line is this. You can raise all the objections you want against God, but in the, in the end, God wins, you lose, you end up under his condemnation. We may not understand the convoluted language or, or, or objections here that, uh, that they raise, but we understand the bottom line. God wins always. God is truth always. Well, we have heard Paul's response to the four great objections, the objection to his word, the objection to his faithfulness, the objection to his righteousness, his truth. I want to give you four great applications that I borrowed from Pastor Stephen Cole. What personal applications can we pull out of this difficult text in Romans chapter 3? And the first is this, and they're written in your outline. Spiritual privileges do not give you any advantage with God if you do not respond in faith and obedience. Rather, they increase your accountability to God. Spiritual privileges do not give you any advantage with God if you do not respond in faith and obedience. Rather, they increase your accountability to God. Israel as a nation was given amazing spiritual privileges. They were the only ones on earth entrusted with the very words of God. But rather than responding in faith and a life of thankful obedience to God, most of the Jews rebelled against God. They worshiped the idols of the pagan nations around them. Now, we also, we live in a land where we have an amazing spiritual privilege. On Christian radio and TV, God's word is taught. The gospel is proclaimed 24-7. That's not to say everything on radio and TV is the gospel, but at least it's there. There are wonderful, great teachers and ministries. Most Americans have a copy of God's word or more than one copy. At least statistically, most adult Americans grew up in a Christian home, even though that is rapidly changing. That's not as true anymore as it used to be. But if you grew up in a Christian home, if you have attended church at all, you have an amazing spiritual privilege. Your parents or your grandparents may have taught you the way of salvation that he provides in Jesus Christ. They may have taken you to a church where you hear God's word explained and applied. But here's the question. But have you responded with faith to Jesus Christ as your savior? Have you responded to that truth? Have you repented of your sins? Do you seek to walk in obedience to God's word? If not, on judgment day, growing up in a Christian home or having the benefit of living in America will prove not to be a blessing, but a curse. Because it increases your accountability to God. And the second great application drawn out of this text is. The Bible is a great treasure that God has entrusted to us. Therefore, we should study it and seek to obey it as the only wise way to live. The Bible is a great treasure that God has entrusted to us. Therefore, we should study it and seek to obey it as the only wise way to live. Martin Lloyd Jones applies the point this way. So the point, therefore, at which you and I start is this. We say, this is no ordinary book. This is the word of God. Do we show that we realize that and what a privilege it is by reading it, studying it, delving into it, spending our time praying over it? Lloyd-Jones continues by saying that we should not just quickly read a few verses as a matter of custom in the morning before rushing off to more important things. 
Rather, we should say, here God is speaking to me. He says that if we really believe that the Bible is God's direct word to us, we would not spend more time each day reading the newspaper and other things than we do seeking to understand and apply the oracles of God. And I would add to that, we would not spend more time on social media with our faces in the smartphone or on the internet than we do in the word of God. Somebody say ouch as they do in those talk back, <laughs> talk back churches. John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist, wrote about the Bible. He says, I am a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. Oh, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore, God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. If God has entrusted us with his very word, then surely it means to be the foundation of our life, the light for our path in this dark world. We must not neglect our Bibles. Thirdly, if you are fighting against God, you are fighting a losing battle. The only way to win is to give up and submit to him. If you're fighting against God, you're fighting a losing battle. The only way to win is to give up and submit to him. There are many things in God's word that are difficult to understand, such as the doctrine of sovereign election, that he chose us before the foundation of the world. But there are also things that are difficult to rejoice in, such as the doctrine of eternal punishment. These are matters that are hard to understand. Why does God allow little children to suffer terrible things? Why does he allow many to live and die with no gospel witness? Why doesn't God tear down the satanic strongholds of false religions that deceive millions? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't wrestle with these hard issues and try to think them through very carefully, but there are two ways to approach these kind of hard matters. The first way is you can come as a submissive child, asking the Father to give you more light so that you will know him and know his ways more accurately so that you can obey him more fully. Come as a little child, or you can come as a critic, Demanding that God give you answers as if he owes it to you. If you try to prove that you're right and God is wrong, you're on very thin ice. Even though you may not understand God or his ways, you have no right to contend against him and accuse God of wrong. Now, the book of Job shows that even the most righteous man on the face of the earth, named Job, had no grounds to contend with God and demand answers. They're demanding answers for 38 chapters until God finally speaks. You know, even if we feel like we're suffering unjustly and learn from Job, when God finally showed up, Job said, I have I put my hand over my mouth. I have nothing more to say. We need to admit our own insignificance in the presence of God, repent in dust and ashes. If you fight against God, you lose. If you submit to him, you win. So wrestle with your questions in a spirit of submission, not defiance. And lastly, be careful not to use your questions and objections as an excuse for not repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. 
Be careful not to use your questions and objections and excuse for not repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. You know, it's so much easier to rationalize our sin and find a reason, blame other people than what? <laughs> Repent of it. It's easy to latch on some objection about God and the Bible and to, to use that objection to, to dodge clear of the truths of God's word and about Jesus Christ and, and then justify our own sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of God's word. If he is true, then every objection against Jesus Christ is what? It's a lie. It's a lie. And God will prevail when he judges all sin. We need to make sure that we've repented of our sin. We take refuge in the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the final answer to every objection. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for getting us through, getting me through this difficult text, Father. And I pray and thank you that it's, it's your Holy Spirit who opens up truth to us. That it's not dependent upon what I say in, in some regard because your Holy Spirit works, Father. He is our teacher. I thank you that, that he has been our teacher this morning, Lord. And, and even though the, the objections and the questions that were raised against Paul were, were difficult to understand and not knowing where they're coming from, Father, I just thank you that even in this, we find that you, God, are true. You are proven true. You are faithful to every one of your promises, the promises of blessing as well as the promise of righteous judgment, Father. Father, I thank you that you are a God that has not left us to us to figure things out. But Father, you have given us your written word. You have sent to us the living word, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins to pay the entire penalty that we can turn to him in faith and trust and repentance and be saved to know what it is to live eternally and, and to know what it means to live with your Holy Spirit living in us, Father. Father, as we struggle with things that are hard and as people raise questions to us that are difficult to answer, Father, help us to remember to always bring it back to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.